You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 63 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this week's show, we have another former senior international and uh, more than a 10-year pro, Mike Bernard, now currently coaching uh, part of the Myersco College program up in the Northwest, but a Manchester boy through and through, and has a super um, interesting, holistic view of the game, having been involved with the BBL in its heyday um, back in 1994, 95, 96, uh, the early, early days uh, with the Giants as a 16, 17-year-old on the bench, before actually then rejoining them uh, almost uh, two decades later, uh, 2013, 2012, 2013, uh, with the second incarnation of the Giants, has kind of seen the, the league come through the entire progression, but also had um, an impressive time uh, in Europe, particularly in Slovakia, but a number of other different countries um, across across the continent. So, yeah, came with a, with a lot of knowledge, spoke about national team days, uh, spoke about his professional days, spoke about his college days, spoke about the early days, but a super interesting and insightful conversation that I hope you will enjoy as much as I do. Um as always, before we do get into this show, please go and take two seconds to check out our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. There you can sign up to give us a monthly contribution of as much or as little as you'd like to help us continue doing the work that we do. Please go and check it out, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. Uh, as always, if you've got any feedback, if you want to let me know what you think, um, you can reach out to me on every single social media platform at HoopsFix. Or if you want to uh, reach out to me privately, uh, you can hit me up uh, on my email address, sam at hoopsfix.com. If you're watching on YouTube, please leave a comment below. Uh, and if you're listening on iTunes, please take two seconds to give us a rating and review. I do actually have one that I forgot to bring up and prepare, but I'm going to quickly just dig it up. Uh, the most recent review that we had was from Billy Beto, uh, massively appreciated. Thank you, Billy. And he said, one of my favorite podcasts, great insight into the game and the key people involved in basketball in the UK, made by Hoops Fix, which has made itself a central part of the game. Keep it up. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Billy. Uh, anyone else listening that wants to do it, please go and give us a rating and review. It'd be hugely appreciated uh, and help spread this podcast far and wide. Anyway, that's enough from me. Here is this week's show with me and Mike Bernard. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So there's a there's a there's a ton of stuff to to talk about. Obviously, uh, a very prestigious career, um, but I'd always like to sort of go back right to the beginning and start kind of where it all started. So, kind of what what made you first um, pick up a basketball and start playing the game? Ah, uh, um, it's kind of weird. I was, I was playing cricket at the beginning, and uh, my dad used to play for the local uh, club team. I used to go watch and play. Um, just play for school. And then I got asked to play for England boys and I picked it up a lot more as I got asked to do that because of, I guess because I was a fast bowler uh, with my size and the speed and stuff like that for a kid, it was, you know, it was unique for them. So I just continued with it for a bit. And then um, my cousin Oliver, uh, nicknamed Jossie, used to be on TV for a TV show back in the day called Jossie's Giant. Um, he was playing for Giants uh, under-19s back in the day with Yorick, uh, Steve Brown, a couple of other guys that um, some people will recognise. Uh, and uh, he, that was my... So he 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 saw me and was like, you know, Jesus, you're tall, da 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 da, 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 da
asking anything about at the time. I didn't know whether I wanted to or not because I didn't want to disappoint my dad. I was like, no, nah, I've played. I played at school, I played at Trinity, da da da. And he was like, right, well, come over to you know basketball trials and and well, I'm not trials. Come over to a basketball practice and see if you like it. I went over to Giants. Uh, I think they were at Altrincham. Is it Altrincham or, or um, Stratford Sports Centre? Oh, Stratford Sports Centre. Okay. And um, I saw the team. Saw Danny Craven. Uh, met Jeff Jones for the first time. Uh, so. Jack, you know, introduction to Jeff, and then Jeff was like, do you fancy playing, da, 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 da. and I was like, yeah, so I started playing um, pretty much 94 um, with the Giants team, um, and then it just, it, it escalated from there, really, it, you know, I, I got I got a feel, I got a liking for scoring, you know, all the time, I mean, in cricket, you know, you, you go up to bat and you score, but I was never a great batsman, you know, so I was always out after probably, like, maybe 10, 10 to 15 runs, maybe. Uh, I was a great bowler, so I was, you know, I was very good at that. But batting was horrible for me. And then when it came to, like, basketball, and you could do all these things, I was like, yeah, this is intriguing. I, I like this. So I dropped the cricket. And my dad wasn't too happy. I picked up the basketball as it got on, and I started making the team and traveling and going with the men's team and going with the under-19s the under team with Jory. Back then, Europe was the big star in, you know, in, in, in basketball, especially in my area, and then well known in London just for his, you know, for his, his athleticism and his dunks, his flair, his charisma, the way he carried himself. You know, he just carried himself with that swagger, and um, so there was a lot of like, you know, spotlight on him. So I was like, you know, this is something that I like. You know, it's, it's intriguing to me. It's it's fun. Uh, the scoring aspect of it was great, so I just kept on, just pursued it even more. So, so uh, what, what age was it that, you, that that? So, if it was '94 that you were first with with, with Manchester, so you were 16. Is that when you first started actually playing properly? I was I was 15, 16 when I first started playing. Wow. Yeah, I was. I was very young. I was. Um, I was. Yeah, I was very very young. Um, I was really good at school. Um, in the school, the school aspect, once I started picking up with Giants, I got really good at it. And then the school started to, you know, when we had that school team, we started to win, like, easy, like, you know, beating a lot of teams. And um, it was just enjoyable. It was fun. It was fun to play. Yeah. I was going yeah. to ask, like, uh, I've been doing a research project recently and I was speaking to a lot of younger players about kind of their role models. And uh, one of the interesting things that, that came out of it was that, a lot of players, especially when they're younger, they're not looking up to, well, of course, they do look up to the NBA guys on some level, but actually it's the local role models that are super important. And hearing you talk about Yorick, it kind of it, it kind of feels like it's a very similar thing where having that local sort of hero that's kind of come with, from where you've come from that's doing it and succeeding is kind of, it helped inspire you and drive you. Would you say that's kind of fair? Yeah, I would say, I would say that. I mean, you know, Yorick... Yorick had his flair and, you know, he had his personality and stuff. And he was, he was liked and he was disliked, but it was just, his, you know, he competed when we were younger. He competed because obviously, you know, Man the Manchester area, you know, Preston, um, Liverpool, Cheshire and stuff like that. We're not looked at as, you know, the big basketball culture type of thing. You know, London's always, you know, it's going to be looked at differently. Um because they, you know, London's got a lot of the athletes, a lot of the flair and, and, and charisma and stuff. And, and um, we, to find one in our area, which for me, my uh, my age was, was Yorick, 
and just getting into the game, meeting Yorick and seeing all that and coming at you at full speed, you know, you're like, whoa. And you're thinking, yeah, this is this is fun. This is exciting. You know, it's just, it's always something going on when you're on the court with Yorick, always. So it was like, it was intriguing to me to just sit there and sit back at first, look at it and go, yeah, I want to be involved. And then just get on the court and compete, get beat up, get thrown down, get up, you know, people talking to you, talking trash and everything else. And it just, you know, it, it was fun. It was fun for me. I learned a lot. I gained, you know, I had a lot of respect for all those guys back then. Um, it was it was more Yorick and, and um, Steve Brown. Uh, Steve Brown passed away um, years ago. Um, probably about, I think it was like four or five years ago. And them two, they were joint at the hip. And the way that, you know, they carried each other was was just unique. It was like when I started watching basketball, I started to see that, that two-man tandem where there was always two players that gelled together that made the team look as good as as good as it is. You know, like for instance, you know, you look at like before Kevin Durant went to um, Golden State, it was always Clay and it was Steph. <clears throat> you know, you look at like the Jordan era, it was Jordan and Pippen. You know, you look at when Kobe and Shaq, there was always two players that always stood out to me. And Steve Brown and Yorick were always those two guys on on the on the Giants team. And to watch them play together and just work off each other, like carry the load one minute. If Yorick's not scoring, Steve Brown's scoring. Um, Steve Brown ain't scoring, Yorick's scoring. And then the flair that they both added to the game was just great. So it was fun. It, it, you know, it, it really drew me in. Um, and then obviously I started to make my own way up the ladder. What was the, um, I guess, the landscape of of uh, the Giants and sort of the, the Manchester scene at that point? Because I, I think it, it was around probably the same sort of time that the Cook Ownership Group came in and, and, and took over the Giants. And obviously there was a an influx of money and that was kind of the, the, the league on that sort of upward crescendo. Um, I guess you as a, as a 16, 17-year-old, kind of, where were you playing? Kind of what was the arrangements in terms of practices, working with the senior team as well? Um, and kind of what your memories of the whole situation? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've had this conversation with a lot of the kids and um, a lot of the kids don't know how much effort I had to put in, how much work I had to put in in order to, to play the sport. I, When this all started and it kicked off, for me, I was living in Oldham, which is about, it's about an hour on the bus from Manchester. I was going to Trinity High School and I had three practice sessions uh, to get through in the evening, plus I had a, a weights and uh, fitness in the morning before school. So my day to my day to day routine was I had to leave my house at say six six in the morning to get to Castlefield uh, Leisure Center to start my strength and conditioning and my fitness. Then from that I left, went to breakfast with. You know, Mark Robinson, Trevor Gordon, Danny Craven, Panji Granger. Went to breakfast with them. Then I um, either I got a lift from one of them or I got the second my bus to school. I went over to school, did my whole thing at school, finished school around 3.30 on certain days, 3.45 on certain days. And then I had to travel from school um, into town and then from town to my first practice session, which would have been with the under-19s. So I had under-19s practice, and then after that, I had D3 practice. 
So then I had that practice and jumped into D3 practice. Then I had to leave that practice, which was at the velodrome, and go over to the arena to then have senior practice. Now, the distance between the velodrome and, and uh, Manchester Arena, I have to get another bus. I have to go outside, get another bus, go over to town, um, walk through town to get to the arena because the bus where, I, where, where the bus dropped me off was probably about a 15-minute walk. Get into get into the arena, practice with the senior team. Now, sometimes I come in late, uh, but I was excused because they knew where I was. Uh, and then I would have those three practices. I would finish probably around uh, 9, 10 o'clock at night, realizing that I have another mission to get home, I have an hour to get home. So I'm reaching home at around like 12 o'clock, you know, midnight, you know, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. And then my day started all over again. And this was consistent, you know, and, you know, so I always, I always say to the kids, I say, you guys practice for two hours. You practice for two hours. I had three practice sessions in one day, you know, and this was every, almost every day. I think the junior team, we practiced every, I think we practiced three to four times a week. The senior team practiced every day. So I had all those practices. Now, sometimes senior practice wasn't even at the arena. It was at the police club, which is on Princess Road, um, if anyone knows Manchester, on Princess Road. And that was a mission to get there, you know. So my whole day was was pretty much a lot of traveling and just getting to every practice and just giving maximum effort every time. And I think a lot of the senior players respected me for it and they took me under their wing and pushed me even further to, to be as successful as I could. Clearly, it wasn't easy for you to be able to play basketball in the sense of just the effort you've got to go to to get to all these practices and do it what was it that was actually driving you like in your head what were you aspiring to what made you be willing to do all that work and go that extra step to be able to get those three practices in well when when i first started the, the fan base that we had was massive you know considering we were playing in like you know the, the teams the giants was playing in uh, the amateur center and the amateur center used to get packed just get rammed on like Jesus, this is this is big, especially in the UK. It's like, oh, you know, and 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 then when when the whole arena merger happened, and I'm I, I go over there the first time, and they when I think Danny Craven and them cut the ribbon for it, and then we went over after and had practice in there. And when I walked in, I was like, Jesus! Looked around, I was like, Holy cow! Twenty-one thousand seats in this building. I mean, we expecting to put twenty-one thousand people in this thing to play a game. So I was like, let's see how this is going to play out. We, you know, we had our first game in there against the Leopards. 17,000 people in there. I mean, what is going on? You know, this is it's big. And, the, you know, the, the whole draw to like the fan base and, and, the, and the culture of the sport, you know, just drew me in even more. Um, you know, and it was, it was just fun. Like, it was fun to play. It was, you know, great to see fans after games and talk to you. And, you know, there was times where I'd even play, you know, seniors, you know, I didn't play. And, you know, they, you know, the fans would come up to me and want autographs. I'm like, I ain't even set on the court. You know, I ain't really get on the court. I might have done some late lines and some dunks and stuff. I didn't get on the court. What do you want my autograph for? I'm not a star. You need to look over there. Like, no, oh, my son really likes you. And then I'm like, I haven't played. <laughs> so it was just like, you know, all that stuff coming, coming at me at full speed at, 16 years old, I'm thinking, yeah, this is for me. Would you say that you and your peers were actually aspiring for careers in the BBL as opposed to going abroad at that point? 
<laughs> Why do you say that? Yeah. I'm, and, and my story to the States says, tells that, you know, you know, I had no clue about America. I knew about America. I knew about college basketball, but I didn't think that we were going over there. You know, I didn't think, you know, I didn't know about our players going over there. Like at the time when I was playing, obviously John Amici and people like that were already over there, but no, no, them were already over there. I didn't know about them. And I just started playing sport. So I didn't really know about those guys. So, you know, I wasn't really looking at it as to go to America. I was looking at it to take, you know, to play in this, this arena for the rest of my life type of thing. Like, you know, this is, this is amazing. You know, and then when we started playing, playing like European teams and going over to Europe and playing them. It was like seeing their arenas and seeing their pro teams and their clubs and stuff. Wow. Well, yeah, I, I want to stay here. That's what I want to do. And, you know, the opportunity came and obviously, I mean, this is going to move on. Um, you want to ask me that question of how I got onto the States, but it is, the, the transition then was crazy. Like my story after that was crazy. So yeah, so how, how, let's seeing as we're there, how did that move come about? How did so you know you're saying that you did you didn't really have uh, an awareness of the guys that are in the states, you know how did the states get an awareness of you? You obviously ended up going to um, a community college to begin with, like how did it all come about? How did the the move move first happen? Well, like I said, I, I knew a little bit about the states. I went to a basketball camp um, with Yorick in in uh, Indiana. I went to a Hoosers camp in Indiana. Um, we went there for just with the, the whole merge with Cook Corporation, Cook Corporation paid for it all and, and, and for us and you know, the facility and, and the camp and stuff. And, and, uh, and then I came back and I was like, Stacey's, you know, it's really, really cool. And uh, but I, I, there was like a lot of kids. That's so why I'm like, yeah, there's a lot of kids and it's me. I'm like, I'm not fitting into all this. So, so when I got back, I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep going, keep going, keep going. And then we played... It's funny. <laughs> funny. I talked to your, um, not York, I talked to Troy a couple of days ago, and we, as Myerscale College, we have this rivalry with Charmwood and Leicester and so on and so forth, you know. And and it was actually quite funny that it was actually Leicester, it was Leicester's organizations per se that got me into the states. Now, you remember um, what's his name, Bob Donald? Yeah. Okay, Bob, Bob Donald was, was, we, Giants was playing uh, the senior team and the junior team was playing their junior team. And at the time, Bob Donald was there, was coaching Leicester. His father came over to watch him um, coach. And his father coaches at uh, Eastern, see the Eastern or Western Michigan in, in the States. So I played the junior game before the senior team. And his father saw me play, had a great night, had a great game, we won. And then he come over to me and he goes, uh, would you like to go, would you like to come over to the States and play for me at my, at my college? I'm like, oh, is this really, really happening right now? Like, like this is like, this feel doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel normal. It's, it's like, this guy's asking me to come over to America to play at college. All the college things I've seen is like, you know, North Carolina, Duke, I'm watching those guys playing, you know, playing in, in, in the college game. And I'm like, that's a massive step for me. So I said to him, yeah, I would like to. Um, he said, uh, he said, just need uh, some information from you. Da, da, da. You, know, um, your, you know, contact your father and stuff like that to sort everything out, the logistics out. So contact my dad. Uh, and my dad, 
basically sent over everything I had. They come back and said that my grades weren't good enough to go over. So I'm thinking, right, so damn it, shut me down. So he was like, but we have an alternative. And he was like, we're going to send you to a junior college in Kansas. And the coach will contact you, coach Jay Hoekerman will, con- will contact you uh, from Cottonville Community College. I was like, cool. So coach Hurt contacted me by email, um, then spoke to my dad over the phone, and then the paperwork process and everything else went through. Um, everything was, you know, full ride and everything, paid for. Uh, and the only thing I had to pay for was flight fee. No, everything was paid for one way flight, uh, flight there. I'd step spend, um, a little bit of time there and pay for one to come back for Christmas. But yeah, that was my full ride to, to Coffeyville. Um, it was a great, great year. Um, I played with an ex NBA player, uh, Reggie Evans. We both got there at the same time. Uh, Reggie's from Pensacola, Florida. Um, so we got there at the same time. We played, we played together. I had a great other, I had two, two other teammates. Um, one of them is Roy Boone, uh, a great um, Wisconsin player. Uh, he played at the University of Wisconsin. He's one of their, one of their best players uh, back then. Uh, and then there was one other guy, J- uh, Jamel Haywood. He played at uh, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. So he went to a pretty big school. So coming out of JUCO, there was, you know, there was a lot of big schools after our players. Um, Reggie was being recruited by uh, Cincinnati. I was being recruited by Cincinnati with him. Um, Louisville, same for me. Uh, he got uh, Iowa. Uh, Tulsa was recruiting us both. Um, South Florida, which is where I ended up. Mm. Providence, um, and a couple of other places. So, so <clears throat> did you find that transition from the UK to the states easy, or was it difficult, both sort of on and off the court? Well, my parents, when I found out later on, I kind of missed. It forgotten about it, but I found out that I was, you know, I had my ups and my downs um, when I got to America. Uh, my transition was was pretty much simple for me, really. It was just go play basketball. But being away from home um, was kind of like new. Being away from home for this length of time was new to me. Um, you know, I've been on trips with basketball, but I'd never been away for like two, three months at this time. And so, yeah, I got homesick. I got homesick pretty, pretty bad. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time on the phone talking to people, talking to like Steve Gale, my best friend, uh, talking to um, my dad, my mom, and it, you know, it's like I say, I tell you, I tell, I tell these things to some people, and people like take a stand, like, a step back. And I spoke to my mom on the phone. And she was like, she said to me, she says, "What do you want to come back to England for?" I was like, "Oh, family." Da, da, da. I says, "We're always going to be here. We're not going anywhere." We're always going to be here. But you're coming back to England. This isn't going to do you any good. You know, stay there where you are. Pursue what you set up, set out to do and complete it, finish it, feel good within yourself. So my mom was, she was, you know, my mom's very hard-headed. She's straight, straightforward with everything she says. And uh, she was like, I don't want you to come home. You're staying out there. I don't want you to come home because there's nothing there for you. Yes, we're here. We're your family. We're always going to be here. But I don't want you to come home. I'm like, all right, man, I get where you're coming from. And my father was like, I told my father, my father was the same. He was like, we're always going to be here. There's no reason for you to come home. That's where you want to be. You need to pursue it and continue it. So my parents didn't push me away. 
they, 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 in a way, they did push me away, but push me away for the right reason. You know, they, they encouraged me to, to continue, not to quit, not to come home. You know, keep going, keep going, keep going. And, you know, and that was my drive was just like, you know, I'm just going to keep going. Just take it as far as I can take it. You you, know, if it doesn't pay out, it doesn't pay out. Were you coming back during the summers and stuff like that? I um, came back in the summers for national team. Uh, I came back for, for England. Um, went to a couple of Saudi Arabia trips, um, Egypt. Uh, did all I did all the national team trips with uh, Laszlo and, and um, Laszlo, Tony Gabalo, um, Pierre Scamander. But yeah, I was coming home in the summertime just for national teams. So. Did you feel like your game was developing as you expected being in the States? Yeah, I got tougher. I got, I got, I, I got tough before I left because you know a lot, a lot of the old school guys, and if any of the old school guys would have seen this, you know, um, a lot of the old school guys used to beat me up in practice, you know, and, and, and I respect them all for it to this day. I, I still speak to a lot of them. I mean, I speak to Trevor Gordon a lot. I speak, I speak to Mark Robinson a lot, you know, through tech, you know, ask him how he's doing and stuff. Um, I sent a you know touch up message uh, to Danny Craven, um, you know. I keep in touch with those guys that meant a lot to me in basketball. You know, you always have your idols. And I will never forget Mark Robinson for what he did for me. I will never forget Trevor Gordon for how he treated me. You know, how Danny Craven treated me. You know, Yorick, when I was a youngster, how they all treated me and they respected me and they pulled me in like a, as a family. Um, and they also kicked my ass as well in practice, pardon my French, but they, they really you know, beat me up in practice. And then there was a couple of other players that came along, Kurt Baker, um, Akiva Perry. Um, there was a, a Samoan guy that came over, uh, Frankie Edwards, you know, Thomas Elliott. There's, there's countless other guys that, you know, that pushed me. Carl Miller pushed me. You know, there's loads of guys that really beat me up and, and showed me that, you know, this game ain't, you know, you don't take this game lightly. You know, it's physical. You know, you're going to get pushed around. Michael knew, Michael knew used to beat me up in practice. I don't know any, Michael knew was probably this, he's probably the second scariest guy I'd have to play against just because of the hit, the way he, the way he played. There was, Trevor Gordon was always first. Michael knew was second. And then Kurt Baker was third. And they used to crush me every day in practice. Like physically beat me up every day in practice. Bump, 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 elbow. You know, knock to the floor, go up trying to make a weak layup, getting crushed on the backboard, getting pushed to the ground. You know, those guys pushed me and drove me to to be as physical as I needed to be for when I got onto the states. And then when I got onto the states, the athleticism kicked in. So it's like quick, people jumping high. You know, they're challenging you at the rim. So I was like, I had to become more aggressive in my dunks and everything else. And it shown when I came back for the national team um, in a couple of the practices that I changed from the way I was. I got stronger, I got bigger, uh, I got faster, my, I could jump higher. So the, the states did develop me, did help me. Um, it helped me in different ways than what it did in, in the UK. I was going to say one one of the things that um, well that's clearly noticeable when when uh, I see you in person or you know other people that I've spoken to kind of for research this is just your physical presence it's just the sheer size of you uh, not just the height but obviously you're a big guy as well like how much of that do you think is natural you know genetics that's kind of allowed you to be super super strong or was it something that you know coming up you spent a lot of time in the weight room to kind of build that that physicality. 
like I said, coming up from 16, I spent every morning in the weight room. I spent every morning in the weight room. And I tell every kid that they need to spend time in the weight room. If they want to continue this, if they want to continue this path of going playing pro and playing and trying to play in the NBA, the SSC room, weight room is key. It is it's a major contributor to to, to the game. Um it keeps you going, you know, and I and I've been blessed throughout the years because I've I've stuck myself in the gym all the time. Um when I was playing, I was always in the weight room. Always. And from the from when I started playing to when I finished playing, I've had two major injuries. And actually not even major actually. I had one surgery on my knee at 34 where I cleaned it out. That's it. Um I had a problem with my lower back. But that was through wear and tear. And then I, I had one the one major issue was when I was in China, I did something to my shoulder and um I had to have surgery for my shoulder, but that was you know, that was one thing, one big injury that happened because I went to try and block Neil Fingleton um, in practice and Neil's freaking seven foot five, you know, and I tried to block him and it was like, what am I doing? I was going to say, actually, I was going to come on to this later, but uh, I spoke to Duncan Ogilvy um, about the the World University Games uh, squad and the, f- <laughs> the first thing he said was he just remembers you dunking on Neil Fingleton every single day at practice. Neil will keep on jumping and you just keep on dunking on him every single day, all the time. He said he couldn't believe how many times you dunked on him. Do you have any memories of that? I made, I made, I made it a mission for anyone that was as tall as me or taller than me was going to get them it was it was the, the if you if you had a team full of six ten guys, I'm trying to dunk on all of them because it makes me feel more powerful. I don't care if I get I might get blocked five six times, but I'm gonna keep coming at you all the time, and that's that's how I'm known. I'm known for that. I'm known for trying to dunk on anybody. I mean, pops. We had a we had a deal. We we had a thing going in in, uh, in Italy with pops, and when pops was at Benetton. And before the game started, I don't know if Pop's going to remember this. Before the game started, we said, who's going to dunk on who first? Who is going to dunk on who first? And I said, there was one possession in the game when Pop's trying. And I think I got a piece of it, but he hit the floor. And I'm like, man, you're always on the floor. You're always on the floor. And he just got up and we just kept going at each other again. And it was just it was just fun, man. Every Anybody that was as tall as me that could jump, I was going after you. I, I didn't care. I, I, I wanted. To, I wanted to have that dunk. It made me feel more powerful. It made me realize I had a good game. If I dunked on you, I had a great game. It might be two points, but if I dunked on you, I had a great game. If I blocked your dunk, I had a great game. With all the other stuff, they matter to me. I wasn't trying to score thirty points all the time. I was trying to dunk on you, and you know that was that was my goal. My goal was to dunk everything, and that's what I was taught. I was taught to dunk everything. Do you have any? Um particular dunks from your career that, that stick out in your mind? Um, from my junior days, there was one dunk where I, we were playing at Sheffield away and uh, Steve was running on the break and I shouted at him. I had to throw it off the glass. He threw it off the glass and I took off, went up two hands and I went over the kid that tried to pursue the ball. I can't remember the kid's name, but I went over him and then I dunked it and I was like, did I? Did I actually just do that? <laughs> and then I come back down. I was hyped the whole game. We won. We won the game comfortably, but I was hyped the whole game because it was like, did that just actually happen? Did I actually just go over this guy? And then after that, it was like, 
I just kept going and going. I mean, I got, I've got, i gotten a couple of guys, um, senior team, Danny, um, McKeebo. McKeebo was a shot blocker back in the day. I got McKeebo. Um, you know, I got Michael Neal a couple of times. Um, you know, I've gotten, a, I've gotten a few people in my junior days, but then Delmi remembers one specific one, and I'm trapping trying to remember it, but Delmi... Dummy says the one in Egypt was probably the highlight that he's one of the best dunks he's ever seen. <laughs> and uh, he said, I dunked, I dunked on three people, I think it was in, in, in the game when we traveled to Egypt. And it was, and I wasn't really supposed to be playing in that game. I, the only reason why I played is because everyone got sick. Like everyone got sick. It was, it was, it was a crazy, crazy tournament. Um, Ronnie Baker's story was funny. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just tried to dunk on anyone. Um, I had, I've had a couple in Italy. Um, there's a guy that played for um, Sesco Moscow, Carl Hines. And he was probably, you know, when you look at his career now and you go, well, when he played in B2 Italy, I banged on him. And he's like this millionaire guy now. So it's like, yeah, I, I'm going to big myself up. You know, I'm going to big myself up now because he's a superstar. And I've banged on him. And I've got pictures to prior I've pictures to prove it. So... I'm cool. I got evidence. I banged on that superstar. So, you know, and then, so he was one superstar I got. And then when I, uh, when I lived in Florida, we used to play in a summer league tournament and me and my friend, me and my bet, one of my, my, my closest friends, my college roommate and stuff in South Florida, we made it a mission when we played in this tournament to, to dunk on any NBA players that participated in it. So one year we played, I mean, um, we played in this Tracy McGrady tournament. We played it every year and we won it three years in a row. And um, Tracy's team stacked their team with a bunch of NBA players, like three or four. And Tyson Chandler was one of them. So me and Will made it our mission to try and dunk on Tyson Chandler in this, in this pro-am tournament. So we, we, we managed to, I managed to get him and Will managed to get him. You know, he's always going to try and block it. He was young then as well. So, you know, Tyson Chandler was one. Um, but yeah, I've, I've had so many. I, it's, it's hard to like remember them all, but I've had so many because I just made it my mission to dunk on anyone. Didn't matter who you were. That um, you know, you've obviously been involved with coaching now for for a number of years, coaching some of the juniors that, that are coming through and stuff. Uh, that sort of aggressive mentality, which I feel, that sort of hungry, you know, I'm going to put it on you every single possession. I feel like there's a big difference. Well, when I look at players from the States and in England, I feel that the mental side of things is one of the biggest ones where just that aggression. In your experience, like, do you see a lot of players kind of with that attitude or do you think it's something that's missing that needs to be cultivated? Kind of why do you, if you do think there is a difference, why do you think that exists? You know, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist now because a lot of the kids use it as a power tool um, to show that they're better than others. I don't really use mine. To show that I was bad. I just used it because it was it was the easiest way for me to score. It was the most it was the more efficient way for me to score. And I didn't matter who was in front of me, I was gonna do it. You know, I never I never carried myself as I was better than that person, I was better than that person. You know, I never really had that row with anyone. <clears throat> I just I just played, you know, and if my if, if at the end of the game you come over to me and go, yo, that was amazing. And I'm like, I'm accept that, but I'm not gonna use it every day. Um, the the kids the kids now um, they they're always they're always out to try and say that they're better than the next person. 
but then they don't show it, they don't prove it. And it's like, it's, it's annoying because I want them to prove it every day. Now, we have one player here at the school, at this college, and I'll always talk about him and, and, and everyone will know who it is. But when when I brought Edo to this to, to my school, I put what I believe into Edo, and that was to go after anyone. And I had that, you know, that relationship with Edo that I could tell him these things and talk to him in that way. And, and his father allowed me to, his father allowed me to basically take him under my wing and do whatever I possibly can to make him a better player, better person. And I did everything I could with that kid, like just treating him like he was my own son. And um, I pushed him, I pushed him to, to, to play the way I played with his own skill set. You know, he could shoot way better than me, but everything he did was aggressive. Like his rebounding, it was like a, it was like a tidal wave when he rebounded. He grabbed it and he smacked the ball. It was like, Everyone just moved away, you know, and, and when he dribbled the ball up the floor, he just bounced off people. When he went to the basket, he hit you and he scored. He finished everything he wanted to finish. Every every play that he wanted to complete, he completed it. So I, I tried to add that into Edo's game. Now, Edo didn't carry himself as though he was the best player. You know, he, he, he just played ball. I mean, you know, he, he played in, he played in the, um, the uh, Den Camp. You know, he, he didn't walk around there like he was, you know, the, the best player there. You know, he just he just play, he just played. He let you see it through his game. And I tried to get some of these kids to just be like, you know what, you're not the best player yet. You're just not. You got a lot of learning. There's a lot. There's a lot more you can learn. And but what I want you to do, I want you to be aggressive all the time. You know, the aggression will keep people away from you. You know, they they don't want any part of that aggression. They don't want any part of that. You keep running your mouth. They're going to want part of that because you ain't showed them anything. You're just talking. But the minute you show them that you can play the game and play it aggressively and, you know, everything is everything's finishing above the rim. If you're a dunker, finish everything above the rim. You know, if you're a shooter, come down and catch fire quickly. Shoot, 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 shoot. You know, if you, if you can do all those things without opening your mouth, people will respect you a lot more and people will be like, yeah, you are, well, you know, you are good. I, I, I can say you're good. You know, I, you don't have to say you're good. But I, now I can turn around and go, yeah, you're a good player. You know, did, and, and that's what I try to do. Did you ever get into trash talking in your playing days? No. I, if, you know, the only person, you know what, the only person I ever trash talked with was Errol Senior. And the only reason why I trash talked with Errol is because me and Errol used to have wars. Like, we used to battle. And it's funny because we continued that war when we played in the... Um, the over 40s tournament that they play in the summer. Um, the Masters. Whatever it's called. Yeah, the Masters. We, we we showed it again when we played in that together. And the referee had to come over and say to us, man, can you two stop, please? And, but we both looked at each other and we looked at the referee and we was like, man, this is how we both play. Go away. And we kept going. And it was just funny to me because it was, you know, that was the only person I ever really talked trash to, you know, because we, we, had, that, we had that respect for each other. We, you know, we pushed each other every time we got on the floor. We made each other better, you know. So I never really was a trash talker. Um, you know, I, I got into confrontations because I used to dunk hard. I used to move people out of the way. People used to try and come up, come after me. But I never really opened my mouth and, and, and said I was better than you or you're trash or you're this. It just wasn't me. Wasn't your style. So, so going back to the timelines, um, you spoke about it briefly there, but, you know, playing, representing the national team during the summers. So you're... 
am I right in thinking your debut with the senior men in England was 97? So it was actually, it would have been the year before you went to college? So you were like 19? Yeah. Can you, do you remember sort of getting that called up as a teenager and kind of, well, and then I guess as an overall thing, like what it meant to you to re represent your country? It was amazing. I knew, I knew going in, I wasn't going to play. Uh, I knew I was just going to be one of the guys. And I was happy with that. I was totally happy with that. It was the fact that I'm traveling with all these, all, all these great players, you know, well, well-known players in the country, you know, Steve Bucknell for one. You know, every trip that Steve went with Lazo, I ended up going on, which was great. Every trip that Ronnie Baker and Steve Buckner were on, I was on. You know, so playing with those guys, those iconic guys that you guys know and, and love in London, it was it was amazing for me. And I, I was just humble just to be part of it. Like, I wasn't even bothered about getting on the court. When I got on the court, I lay up line in, in the halftime lay up line. You know, I was good enough for me at the time. You know, I was always ready, though, to play. I was always ready to get on the court when called. Um, when we was up, when we started to go up in the games, um, and, and the same when we were down, I kind of was like, when we got down to, like, a certain point in the game, I was like, yeah, I know I'm going to end up going in. I need to, like, get ready to go in because, you know, it, it'll be even more embarrassing if I go in there and mess it up. Um, when we were up, I had to go in there with a different mentality as though I can't be the weak link to this, so... I'm going to protect the rim all the time. I ain't going to shoot any open shots. I'm, I'm, I'm a pass and I'm a screen. I'm a rebound, trying to get putbacks, tip-ins. Defensive end, I'm just going to block shots and play defense on my man as aggressively as I can. And, you know, they, they that was the kind of way I played it. I didn't go in there thinking that I was going to play significant minutes and put a whole bunch of numbers. I just, you know, I just did my part to, to be a part of that. To be a part of that team was was a blessing in itself, and I was humbled to be a part of it. You know, Laszlo always called me up for it. I was going to say that um, I heard I heard you on the Myersco podcast and in the, the initial pilot episode, and you were talking about sort of uh, the impact that that Laszlo has had on, on you and your in your career, and kind of the any time I speak to any of the players from that sort of era, everyone speaks so highly of, of, of Laszlo. He seemed to be a very much a, um, a player's coach. Can you kind of talk about uh, the relationship that, that you had with him, that the other players had with him, and why you think that he meant so much to uh, players involved with his programmes? Laszlo and them have cared. You know, he cared. He, he's, he's, he cared about, about his players. He cared about the team he was coaching. And he's... And he, it's shown throughout his history of coaching and the teams that he's coached, um, the, the history that he has behind him. Um, this man can walk into, you know, Eastern European countries and, and Saudi Arabia and all those places and be treated by royalty, you know, by players, by, by coaching staff, by, um, by everyone, you know, because it's the way, it's just the way Laszlo is. He's loved. He's looked, yes, and he's going to be hated. You know, a lot of people, you know, you're going to have both. But a lot of people like him because he does what he needs to do for you. You know, if we're traveling and the travel the travel situation is messed up, well, that's what will fix it out of his own pocket. If, you know, if, if we're, if, if we've got a situation where we can't get guys across from whatever team that they think, He'll go above and beyond contact, contact, contact to get those players in because he needs them. You know, 
he'll battle for you when when you have situations you know that you can't control. Like he knows a lot of people in fever in fever. He you know he'll contact to find out the logistics, the, the legalities. He'll you know he does all those things that's necessary to help the players. Um, I've worked for him now. Now that he's been doing his Euro camps for for years, and I've worked for him on on those for years now. For I think it's like maybe six years, seven years now. And um, <clears throat> every year, I would do it. Every year, if I could possibly, if I can, I'll do it. You know, and and I have done, um, just because of what he's done for me. It's it's you know, he's he. It's hard for me to talk about him because he's like a he's like a father figure to me when it comes to. Like my basketball and stuff. Him, him and 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 Joe, big Joe. They they were the guys that Joe White showed people like me. Yeah, big big Joe showed they 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 showed people like me the you know the respect and the love that they have for the game. They pushed it onto us, and and I have they're, they're the two main figures in my mind that I can always relate to and, and talk about. You know, Lazlo loved his players. Joe loved his players. Um, and I have a lot utmost respect for both of them, um, you know. But yeah, Lazo did everything for for me really. When it came to basketball, Lazo was the guy. What, what were your interactions with with Joe White like? Uh, you know, with him being a, um, a London a London Hackney guy, obviously you being a Manchester guy, kind of. Yeah, what were your interactions with Joe? Every every year when we had rough and ready, Joe would ask me if I wanted to come up and play for one of his teams. That is that's. That to me is like wow, you know. And then we'd scramble together and we get a Manchester team together, and then we drive up there and we play. It. But every year he'd ask me if we're not bringing the team up, do you want to come and play for me? And I was like, yeah, Joe. If we're not if we're not got a team, I'll come up and play for you guys, no problem whatsoever. You know, anything that if Joe if Joe invited anyone me to anything, I'm going. You know, it's just it, the respect. I, I didn't know him like the rest of the, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't have the, the personal connection that everyone else in London had with him. But the connection I had with him was great because I'm from Manchester, mate. You know, I'm from Manchester, he's in London. The connection we had from that far apart was great. Like the respect when we walked into the gym was amazing. Like we walk over, we high five, you know, hug each other and stuff like that. And it was like, this, he's from London, I'm from Manchester. Like, it's it's a great great feeling to know that this guy respects me that much to invite me up there every year, you know. So I I've got the most respect for that one. You mentioned it there, rough and ready. Like I love I love hearing people's memories of rough and ready's. And can you kind of talk about uh, kind of what it was to you? You know, your generation of guys and uh, your sort of maybe standout memories from from that tournament. My standout memories is how do you think? My God, like I tell everybody, like everyone talks about Lua, Lua. I respect Lua. Lua is a great player, great player, great player. But his brother, Adju, oh my goodness. When he did stuff on the court, you had to sit back and go, I don't want no part of that. You know, hitting threes, taking people off the dribble, dunking on everyone with his length. Like, I don't want no part of that. But it was like, I'm sitting back going, yeah, I'm about to get some of that one. Because he's my height, so I have to guard him. You know, but he plays the point. <laughs> he was playing the point at the time. 
I became, I'm like a son of a playing point guard, playing guard and a guard and a point guard. I'm like, this isn't going to go down well. So it, it, could either, it could either make or break you. You either going to get embarrassed or you're going to gain some more respect. And I guess I'm, I'm gained as much respect as I possibly could through all the London kids because, you know, I went at them all, all the time. My, you know, Mike Martin, uh, Julius Joseph, you know, all those guys. I went at those guys all the time. But Adju, man, he, he, he was... He he was really really something special when when he when he was a youngster when he was a junior he was he was something special man. I wish his career would have would have taken off even more. Um, obviously he had his ups and downs and you know it's where he went to and stuff like that. But he was a great player. You know, that's that's what I remember. What do you think makes what do you think separated rough and ready? Why does everyone speak about it so fondly? Um, yeah, what 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 was it about it that 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 made it so great? It brought everyone together. It brought everyone together. There was this whole rivalry stuff that we have. We, at the end of the day, Rough and Ready showed you about it. It brought the respect that you had for each other. You know, you can have the rivalry, but at the end of the day, respect the person in front of you. And when we came together in Rough and Ready, it was respect. It was all about respect in that gym. We all respected each other. And we knew we were there for some fun. And we were going to have fun and we were going to laugh and joke and sit on the sideline and and clown each other and talk about the season, but it was it was literally the most humbling place I could be in. Like it was great. It was like it's like having an after party. You know, at the end of the season, it's like having an after party. You go and mingle with your boys, and they were my boys. You know, all those guys down there from the Birmingham crew, from the Manchester lot, from uh, bringing up Matt Hogarth and coming up there with me, and and you know all the London guys. It was just, we just all came together in one gym and just said, you know what, let's leave all the seasonal stuff. Let's just have some fun together. It was, dur- it was during a time, it was during a time when, um, you know, the le- the professional league was, was dominated by um, Americans. Like, do you think that that sort of added to its gravitas because of the fact it was the one place where you're showcasing the British talent that generally, well, in the domestic league wasn't being showcased or was based abroad so people wouldn't get to see them a lot? Yeah, it, you know what? It showcased all the young talent. I think we need to, like, I think it needs to come back. You know, I, I know, I know you, 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 you know, you've had it with the hoop fix and stuff like that, and I, I know that it needs to continue. That kind of stuff needs to continue, where all the, the good players come back and just have a massive blowout, just have a great, a great time. All the fans, tickets, all that stuff, DJ music, all that stuff needs to come back, man. It was, it was the culture, like, it was, the, it was really good to see. You know, and then you had you had a pro, you had some of the pro players come in and watch. You know, they would come in and watch all the junior junior players playing in this thing, and it was it was just it was great. The crowd was it was rammed, like parking in Brixton, crazy, <laughs> like being on parking next to bins and stuff, trying to get my car in and then get upstairs to play my first game and stuff. It was the the whole feel for that that tournament and and the love that was shown at that tournament yeah we got free gifts and we got this we got that and so on and so forth but it wasn't about that it was about the game it was about playing and having having a lot of fun there was a lot of games played so uh, just before we move on from the the national team stuff um, I wanted to ask whether there are any particular standout memories you have of your national team days. Are there any particular games that come to mind, any particular moments uh, that come to mind that are, are worth sharing? Uh, Egypt was, was 
was probably one one of my um, fun times. Obviously, I played a lot in there because of, because of this, you know, sickness some of the players got from food poisoning and stuff. Well, not food, but water. Um, but yeah, I, I played a lot of minutes in, in Egypt, um, and I, I, I guess I must have gained a lot more respect from like the guys on the team just through like doing what I did on the court. Um, you know, guys like some guys that came in that were new. You know, they they respected me. They didn't know me before, and they, you know. They, Got to know each other even more. Silas Chung, I don't know if you know who that is. He, Silas, so Silas, he, when he was on the team, you know, I, I didn't know him, he didn't know me. You know, we kind of like, I made friends with him and then like Rafilio, um, Latonye Jr. It was just like the connections that I had when I was playing in Egypt. Um, I think when, um, when we went to Saudi Arabia, that was, that was a fun time. It was a crazy time, obviously, through like everything that was going on in Saudi and stuff. But it was it was a fun time. It was it was probably one of the more, one of the experiences I had there was when we were all we were doing something on one of the far one of the court one of the rims. I think we were doing a free throw game or something, and Laszlo was at the end with us. And uh, and if Chris has them here, this is gonna laugh. But uh, Chris Haslam was on the was on the third basket, far on the other side, and we're all shooting, 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 and then we just hear this massive explosion, like glass breaking everywhere. And we look over, and Chris has got the rim in his hand, because Chris had smashed the backboard, and his glass is just everywhere. And Chris is up like, and everyone's looking at him, and we're thinking, oh, what's gonna happen now? But it was just like it was because you know. We called him Big Country back then. And uh, Chris was, you know, he was big and, you know, he could dunk, he was seven foot and dunk hard. <laughs> and when he did it, because he was always dunking games when he did it, we were like, what are you doing? It's so like, what are you doing? Like, Chris doesn't dunk in games a lot. You know, he shoots his threes, you know, he's got his mid range and his, you know, his post moves and stuff. But he doesn't dunk a lot in games. If he's wide open, he'll dunk it, but he doesn't dunk a lot in games. And to look over and see Chris with a rim in his hand was just like, what are you doing? So I was like, that was one memory that I'll, I'll, that will always stick in my mind. Um, and it, you know, they've, they've all been, they've all been fun. Uh, it's been great times playing for the national team. I, you know, I've loved every minute of it. You know, it wasn't about, you know, obviously it wasn't about the financial structure of it all. Um, it was just the fact that I played for England, really. Um, and it was a massive call up for me. The, one of the things that I that I dug up uh, was 2003 when England were playing Russia and there was a whole visa thing, uh, a visa issue with you. I think it was Julius Joseph. Uh, there was a couple others I've got in my notes somewhere. Um, there was four of you that basically weren't able to get visas uh, for the game against. So they played. So England ended up playing Russia with only seven players, which was less than uh, FIBA was allowing. Which I mean, basketball and England basketball ended up getting a fine. Ronnie Baker came out afterwards in the press and basically said that it felt like the federation was sabotaging um, the national team. They've known about the games for 18 months. Laszlo, uh, I think, retired, re retired or stepped down from the position shortly afterwards, but he basically said that that whole year in the run-up to it had been um, one of the worst years of his life. Um, kind of, do you remember that whole scenario and kind of... I don't, I don't remember the whole scenario. I would be speculating if I did. But, you know, again, when we talk about Laszlo, it's like I said, he went above and beyond to, to help the national team. A lot of people don't know this, but he, he spent a lot of his own money. On, on some of this national team stuff. Like, 
for instance, we had to travel to, um, what is it? We had to travel to Egypt. No, no, we had to travel to, sorry, uh, Australia to play New Zealand. And they put us in economy. Now, I'm not trying to say, you know, put us in business. I'm trying to say block, book, exit seats. Back then, it was very simple to do that. You call up and tell them who's getting on a plane. You can block, book, exit seats because of the height. We all get there, we're all sat in the corner. You've got like three or four seven-footers on this team. What is going on? So Laszlo, being Laszlo, bumps half, bumps most of us up to business on his card. We go to, we're going to China. Neil Fingleton is seven-foot something. Seven-seven, I think. Seven-seven. This man can't sit in economy. What are you doing? Like, the one person on our team that should be moved up to business class or first class is him. I don't, the expenses, whatever. He should be moved up. No, we had him in the economy. So Laszlo bumped me and him up and put us in business. Wow. You know, out of his own pocket. There was a time where Laszlo did it and me and Andy Betts came together and was like, nah, 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 nah. This is when we were playing pro. We're like, nah, 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 nah. No, Laszlo. You know, no, you're not paying. No, you're not paying for it. No, sorry, no. We'll pay for ourselves. We'll bump ourselves up. We'll pay for ourselves. Because we were making the money. We could do it. And Razzle's getting ready to warm us up again. We're pros. We're pro players. We can do that ourselves. But Lazo being Lazo, yeah, I, mean, I need to upgrade my guys to upgrade these three guys to uh, business class, please. No, no. But it was an ongoing thing. We had a trip to, um, a lot of people don't know all these things. We had a trip going towards, I think it was Serbia. And we, we, we flew into Hungary loaded up in Hungary in a minibus and a trailer and drove across the border. I don't know why we did that, but it had to have been something to do with either flights, funding, that they didn't want to pay for the flight from, from the UK to Serbia. We had to drive across the border in a minibus and a freaking tra- with a trailer with all our luggage in it. And what's going on here? Yeah. You know, staying in a senior national team, staying in a hostels. Hostel? Bunk bed hostels? Come on, man. What, what's going on here? Like, you're trying to tell me that we ain't got the money. If we ain't got the money, then don't, don't send the team. You know, don't don't just send us and then put us in all these little shitty accommodations or don't send us and put us in these, um, you know, put us in economy seats without block booking exit roles or bulkheads. I mean, it's logic, mate. We're, we're basketball players. We're not hobbits. You know, we're, we're tall. You're sending them, sending them. Six, six, five, six, seven, six, eight, six, nine, seven foot, seven, one plus a group of guys across the across, you know, on a plane. They got to be comfortable because if not, when they get off the plane, they're going to be uncomfortable. They don't want to play. Yeah, the you and you you were involved with the GB program when it came around after the um the the London two thousand twelve successful successful bid for the Olympics. Obviously, the GB program was kind of um yeah brought back to life. Uh. Do you remember like the difference between sort of that setup compared to the England setup of, of the day? Obviously, that that program had um, a lot more funding uh, than the the the, initial, the original England programs that you that you had. Um, kind of, what are your memories of, of those that early year of the of the of the first GB program of the new era? I had a lot. Of, there's there's a lot of anger towards that, but now I try to how it it was it was a great it, it was it was a great situation to to be in uh, obviously with the whole GB setup, the whole mixing of the teams and 
and um, the class of players that they were putting together. Um, it's the first time I just met Robert, Robert Archibald. Um, you know, me, Andy Betts, we've always been teammates on national team. Um, you know, Chris Haslam. Um, and then, the, you know, Pops. Obviously, we bumped into Pops through now through playing pro. Uh, Andrew. You know, a couple of other guys that were on the team. But um, I just think a lot of money was spent <laughs> that year for, for no reason. Um, and I think that was the, 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 either the start of the decline or the start, you know, whatever it is now. Um, but I think it could have been done differently in my eyes. Like, it was, there was a lot of money spent. You know, I know, I know that. I know there was because I spent the same money when I came out of college um, to, to work at the facility that we were at. You know, my agent paid for the paid for the, the, the fees for me to work out at that place. And it was expensive. You know, and I think I think it could have been done differently. I think, you know, if we're talking about our national team, I think it should have just been, been done on home turf. We should have just got, you know, the best place we could have at home. Yeah. You know, the best gym we could have at home. Brought everybody home so they could be with their families. You know, where where was that first training camp? It was at IMG. IMG, okay. In Florida. Yeah. Yeah, it was at IMG Academy in Florida. Um, it was it was a great camp. I mean, it had everything there. Um, you know, I, you know, the fitness and everything else was great. You know, the, the, the skill stuff that we were doing was great. Coaching staff were great. Um, you know, it was fun. I just think it could have been done differently. I just think I think it could have saved a bit. But, um, it was the start. Of, it was the start of what was what was coming really. One of the articles, uh, I, there was an old article in the Times from around around that time, which said that um, you ended up having to withdraw because of pressures from your club at the time. Like, was that was that true? That that isn't a isn't a true thing. Um, it wasn't really pressures from my club. I should have been on the team. Let's just say that I should have been on the team. Uh, I, yeah, I could be. I could say I am a little bit bitter. I wasn't part of that. I wasn't on that team and I wasn't in the Olympics. I could be, you know, anyone could be being a part of that whole first group. You know, being one of the better guys out of the group, I, you know, I should have been on that team. What it was, was I hadn't signed my pro contract when the team was getting ready to be selected. So when the team was selected, um, I had just gotten my pro contract. And when I got to my team, I had lost all my luggage. I completely lost everything, lost all of it. And I was there for a month without anything. But in that month was when the call for national to the trip the national team had to make. So I couldn't go. So I literally I, I, I couldn't try I couldn't travel because I had nothing. I had no shoes. I had nothing. I had nothing to do with basketball. What I had was what I had on. So I'm like having to recycle my clothes, like one set of clothes for a month. Because they ain't, no, they ain't trying to find anything out there that's going to fit me. You know what I mean? I got a couple of, I got a couple of t-shirts and stuff like that from from the club, but you know they they weren't the size that I liked. You know what I mean? So it's like I got a couple of t-shirts to you know to run up and down in. Um, I got I managed to I managed to find a pair of like uh, undershorts to to practice in, and then um, I, I I found a, a pair of tracksuit ones and I cut up. In order to play, in order to practice, so I managed to do find a way, 
but it, it wouldn't have been able, it wouldn't have been enough for me to travel with the national team. Um, I didn't have anything. So it, it came down to the fact that I didn't have any stuff, really. I didn't have any equipment to go with the national team. I was stuck with my bags and everything else. So they went with someone else. So that was pretty much, it wasn't really my, it wasn't my team. It was the fact that I didn't have a team at the time when the, when the team was being selected. And then as soon as the team was selected and I was part of it, I was, I was, already, I was with my team. Yeah. And then my team was like, my team was, my team was up for me going, but I just didn't have any kit. I had nothing. I had no bags. My bag got lost. So it wasn't like, there's no point in me going. Wow. So that was pretty much it for me. Um, but yeah, they, they can steal it whatever they way, whatever way they want. Um, it was just yeah, it was it was literally just the fact that I lost my my, my clothes. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so jumping jumping back to the the career timeline, did you did you two years at uh, Coffeeville uh, Community College, um, then ended up at, at South Florida. Yeah. Those two years at JUCO, will you get you you're well, you've obviously alluded to already. You know, you'll get a number of. Um, of offers and, and interest from Division One schools, kind of what was the recruiting process like? And I guess, why did you decide to, to go to South Florida? Florida? Um, the recruiting process was great. Um, I, you know, the, the reason why I went to it was obviously Bob Donald's father. Um, and my coach just said, said to me, he says, you can make your own decision. He says, you don't have to go there. You can make your own decision. I don't want to be that known. I don't want to be known as that guy that's pushing people to where you know, these kids are being sent to me. And, you know, you make your own decision. I will live up with the consequences afterwards. You know, if I don't get any more players from that person, then that's fine. But, so, um, I was being recruited by Providence Hard, Tulsa, Tulsa Hard. And that was, the funny thing is, is the Tulsa coach <laughs> ended up being Robert Archibald's coach okay. from Tulsa. So, we could have been teammates. <laughs> Which is very, it's very crazy. We could have been teammates because at the time when he was being recruited by him, if I would have left and went to Tulsa, he was going to take me with him to wherever he goes next. But I, he didn't know where. So I was like, nah, I didn't know. So I was like, right, I'm not going to go. To, I'm not going to go to Tulsa. And then, so I kind of like pushed that one away. I didn't want to be in Kansas da, 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 anymore. So you know, it's, I didn't want to be there anymore. Um, I wanted to find a new city and be in something different. And Florida was always, you know, a great place for me to think, you know, to be and everything else. Everyone, everyone in England loves to be in Florida. Um, but Providence were on me hard. The only one thing that I will say, I'm not going to mention the names of the coaches out there, was because uh, I'm still friends with them actually. Is and I've actually told him this as well. I says he came at me negative. He started talking about all the old schools that were coming after me, and I was like. Yeah, I'm, that's not me. I don't think like that. You know what I mean? I, you tell me what you tell me. You sell to me what you have, and that's it. And that's how that's how I treat everything here as well at my school. It's like, what we have is what I'm going to tell you. I don't care about what everybody else has. What we have, if it fits you, you come to us. If it doesn't fit you, then you go where it fits you. So when he came at me negatively, I was like, mm, don't think you're the right person for me, mate. And then... Coach Vaughn came in, Coach Clyde Vaughn, and he's an ex-BBL player, um, London guy. Um, and he came at me and was like, yeah, I've been watching you for a number of years now. And uh, I work, I've been coaching at um, Providence 
not Providence, Southampton, at Pitt, University of Pitt, with Seth Greenberg. And <clears throat> Seth Greenberg was coaching. He was also, so he coached at Pitt, he coached at Long Beach with Andy, so he coached Andy Betts as well. So it's kind of funny, like that whole Leicester vibe, that whole Leicester thing is kind of following me. So, um, so when, when, when Clive kept coming back and visiting and then Seth came in and visited me and talked to me and the feeling I got from both of them was like, you know, this is the place for me. Um, and then I kind of like pushed everybody else away after that. But I had, I had Louisville, I had Cincinnati, I had St. Louis, DePaul, uh, Providence, I had Rhode Island, I had Tulsa. And there was a couple of other schools out there that, that were interested in me, but South Florida made me feel like I was home and I didn't feel homesick anymore. And then I tried to work out stuff where I could get Steve to come over as well. Like I wanted like Steve Gale, Steve Gale. I wanted Steve Gale to, yeah, I wanted Steve Gale to come out to Juco in Florida so that we could be close again, like, you know, we're boys and stuff. And then um, Coach Vaughn managed to find him a Juco in, in Florida, but it, it just didn't last for Steve. So, but, um, but I wanted it to because I wanted to like have my friend there with me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was my whole transition there was through Coach Vaughn. Did you did you find the step up to Division One basketball a difficult one? Um, not really, no, because we, you know, a lot of the kids don't understand is that uh, JUCO basketball is not a bad place to be. You you got to think JUCO basketball is either you don't have the grades to go into D one, or your grades at D1 were that bad, you've been pushed back down. So in real, I am a D1 player, but I just need more development at the at the American style and American level of basketball. So I'm going to go in and get my feet wet, and then I'm going to move on to where I know I'm supposed to be. And Edo, again, Edo's followed in my footsteps again. You know, he did two years at Juco, and I was on him all the time. I said, Edo, your grades are not the greatest. You need to go to Juco. No, no, I want to go D1. I'm like, no, you need to go to Juco, mate. It's the only step, the only route that you're going to be able to take. And this is also, you're going to develop more. You're going to understand more. You're going to get a different feel. You're going to be able to absorb more of the American style of basketball. And then you can move on to whatever school you see fit that's going to think. Right now, you're getting recruited by, in D1, you're getting recruited by schools that are after their fifth and sixth string player that they've been looking at. You might be fifth on the list. You go to Juco, they're going to need someone to come in and impact right away. They're going to, because they only have two years with them. They don't have four to develop them. They only have two. You go to Juco, and in Juco, they have to push you out in two years. So you're going to be recruited heavily in your senior year of Juco to go on to somewhere where they're going to have to use you. They're going to need you because they only got you for two years. So I said the Juco route, and the Juco route for me was the best route I could have gone. Now, if I would have went to, you know, the Michigan school, who knows where I would be right now. But I know that the Juco route was the best route for me, and I will always say it to the kids, and some people probably going to hate me for it, but the Juco route is the best route for some of these kids to get their feet wet. But they can't go into the Juco system thinking that I'm already the best player. Because it ain't, doesn't work that way. You know, when I went in there, I wasn't the best player. I was the best player here in this country. I wasn't the best player when I went up there. I had to work for it. You know, I had to try and take on Reggie Evans, who's an ex, who's an, an ex NBA player. I had to take on Jamel Haywood, who went on to one of the biggest schools in college basketball, which is Oklahoma. You know, I had to take on those two guys. 
you know, and I had to make it. No, I had freaking, I had Taba, I had a um, Kwame Brown brother on my team, Tabari. You know, I had him on my team. I had to go against. He played the four, athletic, could shoot, jump high. You know, those guys I had to compete with in order to make it to the next level. So, my transition from JUCO to D1 was just the same. It was literally like going from the same team to the same team, realistically. You know, there wasn't anything different. The, the, the glitz and the glamour was different. The gym was bigger. But as far as like the basketball itself, it was just the same to me. You know, there wasn't, it wasn't, there was no pressure. Yeah, I'm going to go into now a D1 school where I'm going to be playing against like, um, um, what's his name? Mark, Jason Maxiel from Detroit, you know, from the Pistons. He was at Cincinnati at the time. You know, yeah, I'm going to have to go against him. But my mindset, the guy that's my size that can jump, I'm going after you. So I always used, that's how I thought all the way through. So when we stepped on the court with Jason Marcel, it didn't really matter to me that he was the big superstar. I'm going to go at you. You know, um, there was a couple other guys that I could remember that I could talk about throughout the rankings and, you know, that I went after. I mean, um, it was a center at, at Syracuse. Uh, what's his name now? Hakeem Warwick. Hakeem Warwick, yeah, he played yeah. in the NBA. Yeah. He played, I think he played at Syracuse. He did play at Syracuse, yeah. Yeah, and we, that was my third, that was my first game back was against Syracuse. After injury of my shoulder, my first game back was against Syracuse. It's like, I'm not scared of him. He might be this big high-flying guy, this big dunking guy, skinny guy that could jump off the gym. Yeah, you. I'm going to go at you as well. Yeah. So if my transition was just the same, basically, going from Juco to D1. What were your so so I looked up the record of um of South Florida and two years you were there so you, you went eighteen thirteen in your first year and nineteen thirteen overall in your second year, kind of what are your sort of standout memories? Did you play in the national invitational tournament in, the, in your in your senior year? Yeah, is that right? Yeah, kind of what yeah, you're, in the United States, yeah. yeah, what are your what are your standout memories from I guess your your time at USF? Um, my best my, my standout memories I have a video tape of it and I'm trying to get it thing um was when I played against DePaul in, in Chicago. Um, I had a blowout game there. I had a, an amazing game, Brandon Hunter. Um, and this other, this other big guy, Brandon Hunter was uh, drafted to uh, Detroit. Um, and then there was this other guy, this other big guy, I think it's Lawrence, Lawrence Stevenson, I think his name was or something like that. And um, I had a great game against them too. And that was when I got my first taste of like NBA like reality. Um, I got a, an offer to work out with the books in the summer. But it didn't pan out. And, you know, and that's, you know, I, I, I was like, ooh, you know, this, this could be my chance. And then it fizzled, it fizzled away, disappeared. Um, obviously, I wasn't the superstar on my team. It was BB and Outrun. So um, I wasn't the big superstar on my team. I was just one of those guys. I was a defensive guy. I was a you know, shot blocker and stuff like that. So, but... You know, my, my, my memories were playing against um, Max Hill uh, when we played for Cincinnati. And that would have been my biggest game. I broke myself trying to block his dunk. I got his dunk. I blocked it. I will say this. I did block it. But I broke my toe. I had eight. I think I had eight points and like six rebounds or something like that. And, and it was like it was going to be the game that was going to catapult me it was against Cincinnati, biggest school in our conference. We played Conference USA. And uh, I broke my toe. And I was just like, I was just a shot in the foot. Like, this got to be, be kidding me. 
You know, I missed my chance to play against Florida Gators because of my shoulder. I came back against Syracuse my first game. I was a little bit rusty. And then to now playing Cincinnati later on the line and break my free toe. So I'm like, oh, God. You know, so it's like, yeah, all these ups and downs. But, um, you know, I, I had a great time at South Florida. I made some great friends, some great teammates. Um, and I, I wouldn't change anything. You know, a lot of people say that, oh, if I could have gotten this place. You know, I, I could have been in yet. I could have, if I would have taken the route of going to Tulsa and going on to um, Illinois, Chicago, where Robert was, Maybe I could have been in the NBA. Maybe. Or if I would have taken the Providence route and been seen in New York, one of the big schools in New York, maybe. But I chose to go where I went. And I don't regret it. I have, you know, I've had great memories of it all. I've had a great career from it all. And I have my family behind it all. You know, I have my, my, my three kids and my wife in it all. So I wouldn't change anything. But it's been, it's been great. Yeah, I was I was going to bring up the the Milwaukee situation. I, there was an article I found from the Manchester Evening News from sort of just when you first turned pro. So you, so your rookie year you signed in Greece, right? And at that point, Milwaukee. Yeah. So was it that summer between after your senior year, the Milwaukee training camp happened, or kind of yeah, that what, was yeah, go on. That was when it was it was supposed to happen um, that summer, but it didn't. It just fell apart. It literally completely just fell apart. I don't know why, but it did. Um, I was upset about it. Because it was, you know, I wanted to do it. I want, I wanted to be a part of it, you know. And it just, it just completely fell apart. In terms and of what they they were saying that they were going to invite you to training camp, and then then it never actually happened, or kind of, yeah, 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 basically, yeah. Um, you know, I, I got told about it. You know, I got told I was going to get the invite and everything else, and then it just disappeared. And I was like, and I got told while I was in after the game, after the after the game in DePaul in Chicago, I got told. Because we went to the Bucks game afterwards, you know, I got told that was, you know, there's a possibility you know, I could get in, get my invite to 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 the summer league team and stuff like that. And I was like, I was so upbeat, I was so hyped about it, and then it just it just fizzled. And I was like, you know what? If it was if it was meant to be, it was meant to be. If it's not, it's not. But I just kind of just moved on from that. In that article, uh, it had an interview with you, and you said like, you know, you think that in the next couple of years. Um, you would hopefully be able to break into the NBA. Kind of, how much was that in your thought process in terms of driving you and thinking, you know, okay, I'm signing in Greece in my in my rookie year. Over the next couple of years, hopefully, I'll get invited to training camp and sort of end up breaking into the league. Or was it just a thing that was kind of floating around and like, oh, you know, I'm going to focus on Europe, and if it happens, it happens. Well, it was kind of like the same thing with me going to America in the first place. Like, I wasn't expecting it. So, like, when the when the whole uh, Milwaukee thing happened, I wasn't expecting it. Um, once I got into Europe, I was like, you know, this is this is good. The money's good. Um, and if I make it there, if I make it to the NBA, then I make it. You know, if, I, if I do enough in Europe, then I will, you know, I'll go back and try it again. And then I just, I, I kind of, I kind of like started to really think logically with it all. And I, I say this to a lot of the kids. It's like, I'm, I might be wrong in, in, in what I say, but if you look at the summer league teams in the NBA, if you're not, you know, they draft two players a year. They draft two two to three players out of that, right? Each team will draft two to three players. And they're playing the summer leagues. And those draftees will be on that summer league team. But the NBA, the NBA team only has two to three spots on their team. So me going summer league and playing with three draftees, where's my position on this NBA team? And I'm, if you think about it, you're going to waste your entire summer 
you know, you're wasting your entire summer on this summer week stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go home. I'm going to spend time with my family because I'm away for 10 months now. I come back, I got two months with my family. I'm going to go home. I'm going to spend time with my family. I'm going to find a new team. I'm going to go back and play in Europe. And that was kind of like my mindset the whole way through. And it's like, I just don't feel the need to waste my time. And it was, again, it was, it was evident to me when my best friend, Will, um, he led Conference USA in so many different aspects. And he was like, looked at as going to, you know, he was going to get drafted. And he was going to get drafted 50th pick the year that Luke Walton got picked 50. And we're all like, we're all hyped for him. We're all ready, you know, we're all thing. And he's at, he's at home and he's ready for it. He's waiting for the phone call. And then they picked Luke Walton. But the, the thing is, is Will did four summer league teams that whole summer. You know, and not one person picked him up. You know, Luke Walton gets in there because his dad decides to jump on it. You know, it's a natural thing. Luke Walton got in there because of his father. If he was going to get, if he was, if he was good enough to get picked in the NBA, he would have got picked a lot higher up. You don't get picked the last pick. You know, if he was good enough to play in the NBA like that, you would have picked him 45th, 40, you know, 40, between the 40s. You wouldn't have picked him 50. You know, you pick someone that's not recognized, named, you know, and everything else, 50 pick. You know, me, Will was at South Florida. It's not a well-known school. You know, you pick Will at 50. You wouldn't pick Will Walton at 50. You know, so it's like, it's a bit fishy, this. So when I, so, so when I sit back and I look at, like, and, I, and, I, and I, my thought process of how going to these summer league teams was a waste of time, and then Will spending four, spending, like, I think it was, like, four weeks straight month at all these summer league teams and not getting picked, like my point is proven. Like we're just not going to get. You're not going to get picked. The draftees are going to get picked. You know what I mean? They're, them guys are going to get picked. And it was like, I was just like, nah, not for me. Not. It's just not for me. Realistically, it's not for me. And uh, I just pursued my my European career, and I just grabbed it every year. You know, both hands and just pursued it as hard as I could. I'm keeping keeping one on the clock here, but just uh, I do want to talk about obviously life in the pros. Um, you you played all over the place. Um, when you look back on sort of your years uh, playing professionally on the continent and obviously here as well, um, what are the standout years for you? It kind of seems like your your most productive years were in Slovakia. Um, but yeah, kind of what are your memories and what are the what are the teams or the years that stick out. Um, my. Cantu years were, were great because I played with uh, the Sostrinikos, uh, Baby Shack. Yeah. Um, I played with him. He was my he was my teammate then. Um, we had to go against each other. Um, I, I, believe it or not, we we taught him a few of his tricks that he'd got. You know, because he was a you know he was a young two seventeen when he came to us. Um, seventeen playing pro, I knew how he felt because I was seventeen playing in a pro situation. So I knew how he felt, how overwhelming it would be. Um, so I took him, kind of took him under, under, under my wing kind of thing. And I was young too. I was only 23, you know? So it was like, I took him under my wing. I was 24 actually. And um, I helped him with on and off the court stuff. And then, you know, throughout the year, he developed into where he is now. Um, but then Germany was a great year for me because uh, I was a defensive oriented person. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time shot blocking and protecting the rim and stuff. And then obviously having the high percentage, high um, 
two-point field goal percentage because I just dumped everything. You know, I played with Wilbur Johnson. Um, he played for Sheffield Shop. He was my teammate. So having Will there, my family was there. My son was born in my my second child was born in Germany. Um, it was you know it was a great family environment being in in, in Germany. Um, all the players there, I guess the coach uh, um, wanted Don Beck, his name was, wanted all the players there with their family. So he wanted a family oriented team. So you're talking like I've got my two kids, and then Will's got his daughters, and then Paul Burke's got his kids, and like all these players with all our kids. It's like it was just a great family mentality type thing. So it was fun. But yeah, um, pushing on to Slovakia, man, the small, the, you know, the small town team, you know, Levicsy small town team, I will, I give them the most respect for how they treated me. Like they treated me like I was royalty. It was amazing. Um, I had, you know, we walked into that, when I walked into that team, they were in, I think it was like seventh place. And they were like, we want to try and make the playoffs. So it's like, we want to be, you know, in contention for the playoffs. And I was like, right, we could try, we could try. Because I was a, I was a senior player. I was an older guy then, 32, I think it was. And, um, and I said, you know, I said, we can try, we can try, but we're going to need some more pieces. And they said, uh, right, we're bringing in these two. We're bringing in this one American guard. And then later on, he's got a friend that wants to come over, but his friend needs to sort out his visa stuff. So we brought in Mike, uh, Mike English, point guard. And then we brought in Ishan Henderson. Um, former, and we went from seventh to second in like in like two or three months. We went from that position all the way up, and then we got into the playoffs, and we started playing through the playoffs. And then we we got to um, we went down one game at the buzzer in the first the first round. No, sorry, in the second in, in the first round we we lost two games, and it's best of five. So we lost two games. And I don't know what came over me. And I went on that, like, their TV. And I says, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And they got it on video and they sent it to me. I was like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, we, we're going to win the next three games. Why did I say that? So I said that, not realizing the, the, the situation that would happen. We won the next three games. So me saying that and that happening made it look great for me. Everyone loved me even more. And I was like, I think I just put my foot in this now. So then we go into the semifinals. We play semifinals. Um, we lose one game at the tip. But the coach went on TV and said, uh, <clears throat> the problem is now we have to go down to, to Levitsy and play. And they're going to be tough to beat in Levitsy. So came to our place. We smacked them. And then we smacked them again. And then we just ran over them in the, in the, the last game. <laughs> Coming into the finals, and my wife goes into labor. So I had to fly home. So I flew home, um, birth of my daughter. But when I flew home, the situation I have right now, my documentation problems and stuff like that, I ran into that when I was there. They wouldn't let me out. So they wouldn't let me go back to my team. So I had to get a letter from the team saying, that if I don't come back, I'm going to get fired. Da -da 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 -da. It's my means of income, so on and so forth. Signed by the president, signed by the, the, the owners and everything else. Signed by the general managers. So it got the, the government got this letter, rushed my paperwork through, flew back over, and I played game five of, of the final. So they managed to hold it together, won two games, and then split, so split the games, and we got game five away. So I mean, you know, I, I, they keep it under wraps. Practice is closed. It was weird. It was one of those like NBA scenes. 
It was like, closed doors, no one knows I'm back. We go into the gym, no one knows I'm in the gym from the other team. Coach's scouting report's messed up. So I come up the stairs and everyone erupts and starts going nuts. And I look over at their team and I'm like, yeah, we're about to kill these dudes. So I looked over at the team and looked over at their coach and he's got his clipboard in his hand. And he just goes, smashes it all over the floor. Because he didn't know I was there. So his scouting report was screwed. So we go through the game. I, I, I didn't start and I respected the coach, the coach run for that. And I did start because um, I've been away for a while. And um, but I went on the floor, I did what I needed to do. Um, made some great passes, you know, got some easy buckets myself. And then we won the game. But there is there is a video and a funny video floating around that there was like a minute and something second left. And I'm on the court dancing <laughs> because I knew we'd won. <laughs> so I'm on the court dancing and everyone's looking at me going, what are you doing? And uh, so I'm on the court dancing and, and we win the game. And the the respect I got from that that fan base was crazy. They were, they were bowing to me and all this stuff. And I'm like, this place is beautiful. Like, not because of that. No, I didn't expect that. I, there's a lot of things in my life that I don't expect and I don't look for, you know. But when it comes to you just through what you've done and how you how you carry yourself, yeah, it feels really good. So for them, I have the utmost respect for that culture, that family, that whole group, that whole team. I still talk to the GM now. I mean, shoot, he sends me like socks and like team socks and like team masks and all that stuff, my jersey and all that stuff. So, you know, they they showed me what it's like to be loved by a team and worshipped by a team. And it was like, you know, so then I went back the second year and we just played out. I mean, I played out my career pretty, pretty much then. Um, but yeah, that was that was like the end of my pro career, really. The one the one thing I do want to touch upon as well is... Uh... Is obviously, uh, yeah, you finished there and then, then you came back and, and played for the second uh, incarnation of Manchester Giants, um, which it would be interesting to hear your view, having been involved in the heyday, um, you know, under the bright lights in the big arenas in front of 14,000, 15,000 fans, and then coming back in, what was it, 2012? Yeah, 2012, 2013. Um, to the to the second coming of the Giants, I guess how how the two situations contrasted, and uh, what your experiences were like um, in the two different I guess stages of the BBL. Um, well, obviously back back in the junior days, it, it was it was a great time. We had all the money, you know, we had all the glitz, the glamour, um, we had all the sponsorship. Um, to then come back into it thinking that it could be the same, kind of like an eye opener that it's not the same. Um, the BBL back then is is was way better, and then a lot of people probably came around and say no, it wasn't. But in my eyes, the, the BBL back then was way better than what the BBL is now. Um, we were we were respected more um, as a basketball league per se because we, you know, you got to look at the great players that have run through that league and the history that some of the some of the teams have had, like London Towers playing in Euroleague, you know. Um, countless other teams playing in EuroLeague, countless other teams playing in European competition and competing in competition. Um, the the European clubs that used to come over and play in our tournaments and stuff like that. And like Sainsbury's Classic, for instance, they held that month, you know, they held at the arena. We had like three I think it was two Russian teams and a Spanish team in it. You know, we 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 played like we played some big pro teams in some of these competitions. And now it's like 
And then we also had TV back then. We had Sky, we had Channel 4. You know, we had TV where kids could watch us on TV. Kids could watch their, 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 a superstar on TV because that's where superstars are. They're on TV. You know, we see our NBA superstar on TV. We don't physically see them all the time. We see them on TV. So when these kids could see us on TV, go, oh, it's a star. Yo, he's a star. Yo, he goes to my school. Or, yeah, he comes into my school. Da, 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 da. So that it's, it's more, you know, kids are more encouraged to play the sport. Whereas now it's not on TV. Um, it's, it's on YouTube. The quality is not the greatest. But the fan base is still there. But the reward is it's just that most of the teams are running on the lowest budget possible. I think in order to class class it as a professional, we need to have just basketball players, not players that are having to have a second job. You know, it's, it's tough. It's tough for me to sit back and say, you know, it's a pro league now because it's just not for me. A pro league is what I'm used to. A pro league is me working you know, me getting up in the morning and going lifting weights, going home, and then me finishing at home and then coming back to the gym and having our evening practice, evening practice finishing and going home. That's pro league to me. You know, pro league isn't me waking up in the morning, going to work, finishing work, going to practice, and then doing that every day after that. It's like, I've got two jobs there. Like, I'm working and I'm playing ball. Like, no, that's not pro to me. That's kind of amateurish to me. And... Probably some people are going to dislike, dislike me for saying that. But at the end of the day, you know, it needs to be back to where it was before in so many different ways. You know, these guys need to be respected and paid to play the sport. You know, someone needs to go out and find a lot of sponsorship for these guys to play the sport so that, you know, our homegrown guys that we're trying to keep will stay home. You know, if you want to keep these kids, you want to keep the kids, the junior kids here, you don't want them to go off to other European clubs, then there just needs to be some form of foundation where these kids can play pro basketball and get paid to play the sport. These kids want to play. They want to stay home. They want to play at home. They want to play for, you know, London London teams. They want to play for Leicester teams. They want to play for Manchester teams. But them having to work all the time and then play in the evening, it just isn't going to work for some of them. Because, you know, they, they want to just play basketball. And it, it's it's tough when I look at it um, from the outside and go, it's you know, the leagues are totally different now than what they were back then. There's a lot of things that need to be changed. I'm not saying it's going to miraculously help, but there's a lot of things that need to be changed as far as like the DBL structure. The other thing I wanted to, to just touch upon was is just like Manchester basketball as a whole. Um, you know, you've obviously you're from Manchester and spent your a uh, lot of your your career and obviously now you're coaching near there kind of what's your take on sort of the Manchester basketball situation um even the other day I was tweeting with 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 James Gordon actually talking about you know the fact that you've got National Basketball Performance Center and Manchester Giants are not playing in it um and it's just like sort of a lot of weird seemingly political situations about why uh, perhaps it's not thriving. Yeah, it's, Is there two different factions? Like, yeah, kind of. What's your take on the whole Manchester basketball scene? I think it's. I think it's too territorial now. I think it's a lot of territory that people are trying to control and not realizing what's what. What the greater good is? You know, the greater good is we need to keep the sport alive with the participation of the kids and not this bickering of territory of who's coaching here and who's you know who's coming into coach here and. You know why is why is this team why is this organization in my area why are they why are they coaching 
schools or clubs in my area they need to stick to their area and it's like no we're in Manchester let's just get together and find out what's best for the city what is best for the city you know the, the best thing is to merge both companies together I believe and then basically keep all the homegrown talent don't have them going off to Leicester or, or, or London keep all the homegrown talent at home here make the junior leagues put all the put all the teams put the, the, the best players in the in the best situation you know, then we won't have the shortage of players on, on the senior teams. I mean, both senior teams this year in Manchester had a shortage of players. I mean, how's that possible? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We have, a, we have an abundance of players in Manchester that are playing basketball. How do we have a shortness of players on these teams? You know, we've, we, you know I, I'm all for kids playing in it, but it should only, they, they should, there should be some senior players in there. It shouldn't be a full team of kids. So I get the kids playing in it. I understand that. But this is a full team of young kids. It's like, it's a lot of pressure that you're putting on them. You know, some of these kids are going to walk away from here going, I don't like basketball anymore. You know, they, 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 the pressure needs to be taken off them through the yelling and screaming at senior players. Then they can be like, right, he's getting yelled at, so I need to step up my game. Whereas now these kids, when they get yelled at, they retaliate. Shut the shoulders, they walk away. You know, so I think somebody sees, I think the, the, the Manchester situation needs looking at in a whole different thing. And I think most of the, the, the clubs, they need to come together to sort it out. You know, they need to come together and work together to sort it out. And some people are going to hate me for it, but you know what? I'm from Manchester. I'm from Manchester. When I was playing in Manchester, there was only one Manchester team. And that one Manchester team, we beat London teams. We beat Birmingham teams. One Manchester team. There weren't two. There was one. You know, we went and did what we needed to do because we had all the best talent in one place. Matt Hogarth is from Bolton. You know, I lived in Oldham. Steve lived in Longside. We had other guys that were from Liverpool. You know, we had guys from Cheshire. We had guys from spread out all over the place that came together and played in Manchester. One team. Mm. And we went out and we smacked all those other big teams. You know, I just think they need to come together and work together, really. It's going to be hard because of the way the territory is split right now. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it seems to be a, a thing with the, well, maybe maybe it's totally UK-wide, but it's the same thing in Birmingham. You know, we were speaking to Steve Hansel a couple of weeks ago and he was saying the same thing. And obviously, you know, me, I'm in, more heavily involved in the London scene and there's very much a feeling of uh, different factions and stuff down here as well. So maybe it's a British basketball thing, but definitely there needs to be more uh, working together and everyone getting on the same page. Um Okay, so to wrap up, just some some quicker fire questions uh, to shoot your way. Uh, starting with um, the best junior player that you've ever played against. <laughs> uh, played against um, will have to be Luke. Well, then, no, I have to. Sorry, Adjudan. Adjudan have to be Adjudan. Yeah. The uh, best coach you've ever played for. In England, uh, let's let's do both, like overall, and then and then if it's not England, England specifically. Well, Coach Ron in Slovakia was the best coach I played for, um, and then over here, Mark Hassan was the best coach I played for. Your favourite uh, memory from your basketball career? Winning my championship in Slovakia. Your worst memory from your basketball career?
And then um, one piece of advice you would give to younger younger British players that are looking to you know do what you did and have a successful professional career. Don't think you're great. Be great. Don't let people tell you you're great. Be great. And then finally, what do you want your legacy to be? When people talk about you as a as a player and a person, uh, how would you like to be remembered? Uh, as a person, that's, that'll do anything for for, for, any, for all these kids out here playing basketball. I'll do anything for all these kids out here playing basketball. I'll give them as much advice as I possibly can. I'm always a, I'm always social media away, phone call away, email away. You know, I, I don't hold anything back. I don't care where you're from or who you play for. I will give you positive reinforcement all the time. I will tell you what's, you know, I won't tell you what's best, but I'll tell you how I feel. I will never shoot anybody else's club situation down. I will always say to you, do what's best for you and do what's best, what you feel is good um, as far as like skill sets and everything else. And, and you know, I, I'm not, I'm not a territory, like I said, I'm not a territory guy. I'm not um, a guy that's stuck in one place and said, oh, my school's the best place. It's what's best for you at the end of the day. What is best for you? And then your legacy as a player? Aggression. My, you know, I want everyone to remember me as being the most, one of the most dominant and aggressive big guys that they'll ever face. That that has been out there pretty, pretty much. I, you know, shooting, say talking about myself is I want to be known for that guy that just went after people. I just don't. I try to dunk on everyone. Perfect. Everyone, that's, don't care that's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Mate, it's been great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I know we've I probably rambled on a little bit too much, but you know, sometimes I, I, I talk too much. That was perfect. Thanks, man. No problem. Thank you. You are listening to the Hoops Fix Podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.